Welcome to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming live to CHDTV. Uh, I want to say a big thank you, shout out to everybody joining us today, tuning in to get some information to help you make informed decisions in your life and information that I hope you take and spread uh, everywhere you go. Uh, we have to be our own communication network these days. And a big thank you to our donors to Inform Choice Washington. This is uh, purely donor-funded um, uh, show, and and we're so grateful that uh, people give so that this is all uncensored media for the people, by the people. And we're very happy to be here, but we couldn't be here without you. So thank you for your continued support of this show. Um, we've got two very packed hours today with just so many different subjects to cover. The first one is all about autism and the current state of autism in, in the United States. Um, I'm bringing on a woman who is, I would consider an expert in this, not only because of her personal experience with autism, but also because she's been following the news, the science, the politics of autism for decades now. Her name is Anne Dockle, and she's a graduate at the University of Wisconsin. She's a teacher, mother of four, an autism activist. And she's the media editor for Age of Autism and Loss of Brain Trust. So welcome, Anne Dockle, to An Informed Life Radio. Happy to be here. Thank you. It's so wonderful to meet you. I have been reading your articles at Age of Autism and also reading the different media posts that you are putting out there at Loss of Brain Trust for years. Um, and I just learned a few minutes ago that I've been mispronouncing your name all this time because I've only seen it in my, you know, in writing, I hadn't heard it pronounced. So Anne Dockle. Um, and, and I want to thank you for your dedication, even though I'm sure at many times it feels thankless and you felt like you're beating your head against a wall. Um, but your, your perseverance, I think, has brought us finally, finally to an unprecedented time in history when there's more people than ever whose minds have been opened and who are about ready to really hear the truth. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Absolutely. Yeah. So could you explain to listeners a little bit about your personal journey here and why this subject is so important to you? Um, first, well, I have an adult son um, with autism. I'm very, very fortunate because he has Asperger's, which everybody knows is very mild, and he has really a lot of assets because of that. He has um, a tremendous recall and organization skills, much better than mine, and he's very technological, and so he's great with anything I'm, I'm doing on a computer. He helped me set this up today, <laughs> and um, but that's what kind of woke me up, and the thing, I mean, when my son was diagnosed and um, in 
in the late 80s, or, yeah, around 1990. Nobody knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Um, they had to get a psychologist. The school system got a psychologist in from Minneapolis. We live in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Got a psychologist from Minneapolis to diagnose what, what he was, you know, his behavior. And she told me um, the rate was one in 10,000. And in my little town, I thought, well, he might be the only kid here with it. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, so it's absolutely absurd that we have gone from that to the current rate that came out recently, one in 30, and that this is just normal and acceptable, better diagnosing. So. Right. Yeah. It, it is really absurd. So from one in 10,000 to one in 30, the new numbers that are out recently with a recent study. Now, one in 10,000, 1990 is not the dark ages. This is not a time in which we didn't know how to data gather. This is not a time in which we didn't know how to properly assess children's growth and development, right? We knew what we were doing then. Um, We had modern tools and an assessment. And it was also not a time in which mothers ignored their children's developmental problems. Not at all. Well, you know... What I like to do when people say, oh, you know, because this is what the media is telling them, that it's just better diagnosis, let's let's set autism aside and let's look at severe food allergies, okay? So a hundred years ago, I don't know what the rate of, but severe food allergy, life-threatening food allergies were very rare. It was, it was rare enough that nobody had made the EpiPen yet, that... You know, it wasn't a common thing. There wasn't a child at every school. Um, And had it been as prevalent as it is today, we would have known. Why? Because mothers notice these things. Mothers notice when their children swell up after eating certain foods or if they collapse or if they break out in hives. It would have been in the literature, right? All of that, the doctors would have noticed, the mothers would have noticed, and the fathers too. I always just focus on the moms. Um, and, um, but it didn't exist and the, the literature shows that everything shows that. And now we have in every single classroom in America, at least one child with allergies so severe, there's an EpiPen in every classroom, something environmentally changed this sort of, um, you can't have an epidemic of genetics. I've heard it, um, explained. You can't have that epigenic, ep, epidemic of genetics. Only environmental factors can make certain diseases in the human population rise at exponential levels, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's so many causes. So people get that. Oh yeah, allergies that, you know, those didn't, that makes sense. Well, it's the same thing for autism. The, the, but we have such a massive advertising campaign to tell everybody it's just better diagnosis and that's just absurd but you know that's where we are yeah yeah and I, I always say too we we've had idea since 1975 which means that disabled children children with learning problems anything like that they had to be educated 
Mm -hmm. by the school systems so that I've heard parents say, well, the people used to keep these kids at home. And that always baffles me because I never knew anybody that kept a disabled child at home. These kids would have been in school, but Mm -hmm. we just never, special ed was never at the rate it is. You can go to some places. I have a whole list I've been keeping for years um, of the special education rates in um, schools and some some of the statistics are just mind-boggling. They, yeah, um, the huge right. percentage, and twenty percent. And yeah, and one of the other things the media is doing, and and they're being led, they're being directed by these campaigns by various industries that are causing our children to have neurological and developmental injuries, iatrogenic, which means due to medicine and environmental, you know, the glyphosate and everything's in other things in the environment, undermining our children's health. Um, oh, shoot, I, I completely forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> it was a it was a good thought. And I just squirreled and I now I can't come back to it. But um, well, I guess we'll just move on. That is so funny. I should have written down the complete thoughts. <laughs> Um, uh, um, the marketing of it, the diagnosis. All right, let's just continue on. And I bet you it'll jump back in my brain when I quit trying to think of the point I was going to make. So so here we are, though, with a diagnosis of one in 30, which is overwhelming. You you wonder how, oh, I, here we go. I remember what it was. The media puts out there that it's just a different way of thinking, that it's just quirky. Yes. You know, and, and like, like, it's wonderful that your son has these exceptional talents and that he's high functioning, but do you know the proportion of children on under the autism umbrella, the ASD umbrella that would be considered high functioning compared to those that are not high functioning? Um, well, I know that um, I think it's uh, one in, oh, gosh, I think 30, I'd have to actually look it up now, but yeah. uh, the percentage that um, are considered nonverbal is, it's really, um, it, it's at least a third, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. just going to say 30% of kind of timid about putting that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, nonverbal. When I was a kid, I never heard of anyone that was nonverbal. Nonverbal. Right. And nonverbal is severe. It, you know, it, it, right. Yeah. So we know if at least from that statistic, yeah. Um, there's, yeah, I, it's very hard to know how people can somehow normalize children who can't talk or can't communicate properly. Right. And who have the meltdowns and the rages and the self-harm and they will never live independently. So if if that is one, one third to two thirds, if I'm remembering and, you know, don't quote me, I'm just pulling the, I, I should have looked these numbers up, but it's a fairly high percentage of those that are diagnosed with this are severe enough that they're always going to need some level of support in order to get, get through their full life. There's, you know, and then you've got the people at the top, which is all the media talk about. 
they're, they're not going doing news reports, going into the homes and showing the children yeah. who can't function, yeah. who have all these issues. Um, these aren't children. You're not seeing them at the grocery store because they're overwhelmed by the grocery store and they would be having meltdowns in the grocery aisle. And the parents, they just don't do that. And so they they are somewhat hidden from society in that regard because of the severity. But so when they try to normalize this and just say it's a different way of thinking, that's really concerning. Um, so I wanted to, I'm going to share with you a new paper that just came out. I believe it was the day before yesterday. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, it was published in in the JAMA network. It was a viewpoint. I'm going to go ahead and read this in full and then so that we can talk about it. The title of this is At a Crossroads, Reconsidering the Goals of Autism, Early Behavioral Intervention from a Neurodiversity Perspective. The neurodiversity perspective posits that each person has a unique brain and a unique combination of traits and abilities and asserts that many challenges faced by autistic individuals stem from a lack of fit between the characteristics of autistic people and society's expectations and biases. The neurodiversity movement is akin to a civil rights movement. Among its goals are reducing stigma increasing accessibility, and ensuring that autistic individual voices are represented in decisions about autism research, policy, and clinical practice. The neurodiversity movement is having a growing influence on the scientific community, as evidenced in the recent pause in a large autism genetic study based on concerns raised by the autism community. It is also affecting autism practitioners as increasingly parents are expressing reservations about enrolling their child in early interventions, citing concerns that such programs do not value neurodiversity and instead prioritize changing their child's behavior to fit neurotypical norms. So what are your thoughts? Um. That only works if you're talking about um, people that are very, very high functioning, that hold jobs, that maybe found out they were autistic when they were 25. And, oh, that explains my life. Um, but neurodiversity, to me, I mean, I, I've known hundreds and hundreds of parents now. Um, and when you're changing the diapers on your 25 year old son and he wears a helmet because he bangs his head on the world, world, the wall, that is very difficult to describe as, Oh, that's just neurodiversity. Yeah. It, this, it's a tragedy and it's, 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 it's an mm -hmm. obfuscation. They want to make autism not look so bad. So they mm -hmm. hide the real dark side. Yeah. And, um, so it's not such a bad thing. Right. And you know, neurodiversity um, of course, humans are all diverse. And of course, there's always been people who are quirky and a little bit different people with photographic memories, some people who have trouble remembering anything. That's me. Um, you know, we've always had this broad spectrum, but people were functional, right? There's a difference between, yeah, you respect everybody's difference. And, and no matter where you are and what your capabilities are, of course, we love and respect and want to support everybody, no matter what their medical 
or neurological diagnosis. Of course, that's true. However, they absolutely have blinders on and refuse to acknowledge that something injured these kids and young adults and adults somewhere at some stage of development leading to where they are. There's um, James Lyons Weiler wrote a book years ago called The Genetic and Environmental Causes of Autism. And through his research of reading thousands and thousands of studies, he showed that the genetic causes that are solely genetic are very rare, very rare. It's always like the expression goes, the genetic pulls the gun in the environment. I mean, the genetic loads the gun environment pulls the trigger. Um, so obviously not all children are susceptible to developing autism from exposure to a vaccine from other like PCBs or some of the other environmental assaults on our children today. But I believe what we're seeing is that because our children are assaulted by so many things that interrupt their neurological development, pre-cradle, so in utero, mm -hmm. and in early childhood and early developmental stages, that simply being human makes you genetically susceptible. Yeah. Because there, you can't escape it. We've got so many toxins harming our children today. So an autism rate of one in 30, a rate of chronic illness one or 54%. So more than half of all of our children have some type of chronic health illness. What the heck is this? What's going on here? <laughs> and one in six have a learning disability. Yeah. I mean, one in, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So we really, there is no time to waste to bring awareness to all the causes of uh, that's undermining our children's health today. And as we, as we work to um, get rid of those environmental assaults and the iatrogenic assaults, which would be your vaccines, um, and, you know, like antibiotics, um, Tylenol, acetaminophen mm -hmm. is another one. Studies are showing you give that at an early age. It it's, can lead to um, health issues and developmental is issues as well. There's a I forget his name. There's a brilliant doctor, uh, researcher who's been looking at that for years. Um, but also we need to provide hope and healing, right? Our community is rich with doctors and scientists who have not given up on the children and have not given up um, on trying to find ways to biologically heal um, and other methods like like the wonderful, I'm sorry, I'm talking way too much. I want to make sure you get all your points in. But um, J.B. Hanley and his son, his autistic son, who was nonverbal, wrote that wonderful book uh, about, um, oh, see, me and my memory. Um, do you remember, recall the title of the book? It's No, I know what you're talking about. Underestimated. Underestimated. It, it's a journey, and it's all about the... Um, spell to communicate program. And it is brilliant. It's showing that adult children, um, I mean, all children who are nonverbal, but even the adult nonverbal um, people who, who they thought would never be able to really learn that they had a mentality very low when they're taught this method of how to communicate using um, really basically your large muscles that that the the connection from the brain to those those muscles is still good when they use that to to 
point to the alphabet and do this whole, it's wonderful, the spell to communicate program. There's brilliant people trapped inside, you know, and when you let them out, it's the most heartwarming, heartbreaking, but encouraging book. J.B. Handley and his son, Jamie Handley, underestimated. Uh, look it up and get that for anybody that you know who's got um, nonverbal autistic children. Yeah. Um, so there is hope and there's lifestyle changes. There's special diets that really seem to help. Um, and there, there's that methods route. of removing toxins which mm -hmm. really help kids. I, I know one parent who had his daughter chelated and she started talking. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And then getting them off certain foods, they can start talking for every child. The journey is a little bit different and it can be, it can be a long road, right. To find what path. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, neurodiversity. It's been very challenging as somebody who wants to prevent the harm that leads to uh, neurological injuries, as we've been increasingly having to fight this neurodiversity movement, which seems to be offended that we're trying to prevent neurological injuries. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um Absolutely. I've, I've seen so many um, articles. And if you go to Loss of Brain Trust, which is where I don't have anything that I write myself, it's simply stories that I collect practically every day um, from everywhere in the English-speaking world. So not only the United States, but Britain, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, everywhere on what's happening to kids in school, especially in school. But over and over, I see these stories about um, about celebrating neurodiversity, you know, and we're going to have a sensitive Santa at Christmas. We're going to have neurodiversity celebrations and neurodiversity-friendly towns. There's a recent one in Britain that they just got, they either want to be autism-friendly or neurodiversity-friendly. And it's just as if we just accept these people and we provide for them, accommodate their needs, this is not going to be a problem. And, of course, the thing is, we can't ever pay for it all. And mm -hmm. we make it sound as though these people can somehow, if we're just nice to them and give them therapy that they're going to function just like everybody else. Right. It's ridiculous. It, 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 I agree with you. And yet we agree, again, we agree with supporting everybody where they are, being respectful and giving them all that they need to recover and thrive with where they are, but to absolutely separate that from cause and not be driving and, and very active and saying, you know, we've got to stop this, but just to accept it. They're doing this with um, not only with autism, they're doing it with so many. It seems like all the kids today, it's like no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I've got this. I've got that. You know, every, oh yeah, I've got ticks, you know, no big deal. And you know what I heard on the radio the other day, it was so appalling. It keeps playing over and over. It's like a public service announcement on some radio stations. And it was talking about anxiety and they actually 
came right out and said, it's time to normalize anxiety. It's okay to live with anxiety. Just say, hey, I'm here. I'm anxious and it's okay. You know, and normalize anxiety. So many people have it for so many different reasons. You know, um, some of them environmental injury. Some of it is, holy cow, what is your government's fear porn every time you turn turn on the radio or your TV or the internet? It's, it's you know, our public health system telling you, be afraid, be afraid. Um, you don't normalize that. Anxiety is not something to normalize and embrace and accept as a way of being. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But then we're seeing commercials and ads and sides of buses that says toddlers can get blood clots too. What? <laughs> Heart attacks happen all the time in young people. Didn't you know? Um, normalizing. I said a long time ago that, you know, how, how do these companies that profit in the billions from products that harm human beings, how do they get away with it? They do um, marketing campaigns that normalizes their injuries. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and you go ahead. And the media, which is supposed to be there to protect us, to inform us. I wrote a book called the big autism cover up how and why the media is lying to the American public. Because once you own the media, which farmers just watch the news some night network mm -hmm. news and see that, you know, how many Pfizer and Merck commercials you see, you know, they are not going to have stories that are going to be critical of, or talk about injuries from any of the products of the pharmaceutical industry. Right. And, yeah. And so that the big lies continue. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with the media, it, it's partly the ownership or because of the control with the sponsor dollars flowing in the 70% um, of their revenue comes from the pharmaceutical industry. But then you also have coming off the wires, we've got major media outlets are controlled by very few very large global companies. And when and, you know, everybody's cut back on staff. There's very few real investigative journalists, you know, out there doing their work. And so they grab stories off the newswire. And if it comes from a pharma company that comes from the CDC or the FDA, there's no vetting. They just read it as if it's gospel truth, right? And you cannot have a functioning free society when all of the information being pushed out through through your legacy media is not vetted, is not investigated, is simply trusted. What, you know, the media is traditionally supposed to not trust the government. Right. <laughs> That's right. how we stay free is when you've got these journalists willing to challenge everything the government says. There's there are fourth estate or fifth estate. What estate are they? <laughs> the fourth. The fourth estate. Um so we, the people, have sort of turned into the fourth estate, right? Yeah. It, it's all the social media sources because what we're talking about would never be talked about on any mainstream news source. They it just wouldn't. And um, thank goodness that, you know, I always say I'm so grateful I live in the age of the Internet because mm -hmm. um, we're able to – I mean, I was on my own – I. I spent years just figuring out 
what happened. Actually, the thing that got me, when my daughter, who's in her 30s, was um, 10 years old, one of my daughters, um, um, she got the Hep B series. And they were mm-hmm. giving it to all the little kids in because they had just reformulated it. And each of those came with, it was 1999, a 98. And each of those came with 25 micrograms of mercury. She mm-hmm. almost died in my arms in convulsions. Oh, my goodness. Do you mean, um, was is it like, is I mean, sorry, I'm stuttering all over the place today. 250 micrograms, isn't it? Or is it, am I doing the units wrong? Um, 25 micrograms, as far as I know. Yeah, I, for some reason I have in my head, maybe I'm going to look it up as we talk, but yeah, okay, I, I might just have. Right, it's been a long time since we talked about it. But it's but a lot. That's, that's what really, here's this lovely, athletic, healthy, well-functioning girl. I find her at night. She woke me up when I heard her in her room and she was in serious convulsions and she was, and but she was still convulsing and the ambulance got her to the hospital. Oh, no. So, and no one could figure out why this happened. We had to go all the way across the state to a clinic where they did all kinds of tests on her, and and they couldn't find out why. Happily, she only had seizures for like four years, and she did outgrow them, which they said was common. But they were also used to little kids suddenly developing seizures, and yeah. I wasn't. I never knew anyone growing up who had yeah. seizures. Yeah. or something but yeah again so you know they've been normalizing um for a very long time yeah um and and hiding the the federal government has had a policy since at least i think it was 80 was it 84 that it was in the federal register um and it was regarding what vaccine was it regarding but it was basically said that no, nothing critical of a vaccine or the vaccine program could be allowed to be put out there because it would undermine the vaccine program. So, and it said no matter if it's factual or not. So that's why we have these absurd statements that something is safe and effective and that if you dare speak up and say well sometimes it's not you're called an anti-vaxxer and just you know people roll their eyes or worse i mean you're just you can be attacked and doctors are shamed and and the whole thing it's just it has to stop and there's a reason that since 1986 um that everybody's been indemnified against lawsuits Mm-hmm. Because the manufacturer, the doctor, everybody, so uh, against vaccine injury. So the, the vaccine injury is very real. They pretend it isn't, but they don't have to worry because nobody can sue over that. And yeah, I was part of a group that did all this research on the, they have a bizarre, if you are vaccine injured, there is something called the, um, there is a vaccine court there. Um, there, there is a compensation program. It takes years, years to um, get a case heard. Most of them aren't um, resolved in the in favor of, of the parents, and it's obscure. I, I, I was so mind, 
eye-opening when I found out it's like a clandestine legal system in the United States that handles vaccine injury. And a lot of the, and we basically did work where we found these parents who'd had their children um, recognized as being vaccine injured. And what we were looking for, how many of those kids had autism? And dozens did. Dozens were recognized to have autism as a result of a vaccine injury. Nothing is ever told about this. Mm-hmm. And um, it came out, um, I think it was 2011. Yeah. I, I can't remember everything either. But yeah. yeah, so yeah, the government is hiding everything. And I did want to say something about a recent interview that I wrote up on for Age of Autism. Okay. And it was um, an interview done by Wayne Rohde for his blog. Uh, and it was an interview with Dr. Walter um, Zaharadny. And to me, it was it was uh, mind-blowing. It was, this was, Walter Zaharadny is one of the top um, doctors in the United States. Oh, that's the one with Mark Siegel. So that's that's not the one. Oh, that's but not if the right one. Down okay. enough, you'd, you would find that on each Okay. Autism. Anyway, um, but he's the top guy counting autism numbers. He's um, an expert at Rutgers. He does, he's been doing this for about 20 years. He knows the rates inside and out. And um, he was being making it, this is like when it was one in 44 before the new rate came out and Wayne had him on his show. And I transcribed the whole hour long talk because it was so good. Keep going down. Keep going. You, you tell me when we get there. Okay. It's keep going. Yeah. Anyway, he, um, yep. Keep going. <laughs> For radio listeners, I'm looking at, there, there we go. That, okay, it. so uh, let's tell people um, if if you want to go read this. So it's ageofautism.com, mm-hmm. ageofautism.com, and you're going to be looking for a post called Autism Prevalence Since 2000. Wayne Rohde interviews Dr. Walter Zah, can you pronounce that? Zaharadney. Zaharadney, okay. Yeah. And he makes it very clear Two things that just blew me away. He's an expert who does this work for the CDC. He says autism cases are going up. They are not leveling off. They are going to continue to increase. Second, the cases of autism are more severe, more complex. Mm -hmm. So that anybody who wants to say, well, it's just that we used to call these kids something else. Now we call them autistic. It can't, isn't is impossible because you can't miss the behavior of a severely autistic kid. It, you know, it's, it's classic. So, and he said things like, you know, um, one in 44, he said that might be a national average. And I think CCD, CCD numbers come from enough places um, where they don't do as good a job counting. Maybe the communities are poor mm-hmm. for some reason, but when you average that out, you're going to get less than really what is happening out there. But yeah. when he gave the numbers, he said San Diego, California, 4% of kids have autism. Wow. Newark, New Jersey, 5%. Tom, Tom's River, New Jersey, 7%. One in five towns in New Jersey, in our region, he said, have a rate of 5% or higher. And, 
you, and he makes this one bold comment where he says, we need to be prepared for an adult world where five to 10% of the adult population is disabled with autism. And I'm like, who's, who's even talking about that? Right, so, right. Nobody. Yeah. Uh, except for, well, the parents of those children who really fear what's going to happen when some, when they, they, they're too old to care for their children anymore. Oh. And then they pass away. Who's going to care for their children? Where, you know, where's the money going to come from? You know, um, I know there's a lot of people trying, scrambling, trying to figure out how to set up trusts and, and different systems um, and for this to happen. A really good group home situation. Um, but it, it's, you know, there'll be five kids involved. And yeah. when we're talking, um, hundreds and hundreds and, um, you know, thousands. Like I had, yeah, th I'm sorry, thousands, but yeah. I was thinking of a particular place. Oh um, yeah. Oh, I see but, what you're saying. Yeah. And I have friends in, in, um, in Minnesota next to us here. And years ago it came out that research from Harvard and said that, um, autism lifetime care cost was 3.2 million per individual. And, I actually, Michael Gantz did that research and I actually contacted him at the time because I, I thought that was so under estimation there, such a, such an underestimation. And he told me it was very conservative. Mm. And so I, um, but I have my friends in Minnesota, they have a severe, severe friend or excuse me, son. And he's been in a group home now for several years and he went into that group home when he was still in high school. And his mom told me, you know, my son will cost the state of Minnesota a million dollars by the time he's 21. Wow. So you can imagine what lifetime care for this child is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the thing that that's, no one that's one. To. We're just well, going to get this waiting list. Yeah, it's it's devastating. And, and if I dare go there, there has been some speculation that these COVID shots, which are so very dangerous, you know, they have been pushed harder than ever at developmentally disabled children. And there's been some hospital protocols I had on uh, Grace. Um, I'm just struggling with words today. The lovely Grace's dad was on, um, she had Down syndrome and the hospital protocol. I mean, it, it, it looked like they intentionally killed her. Um, the, you can't look at the information any other way. So it, you know, we, it's just so frightening to think that at some level, our government knows that they have created an untenable, unsupportable situation. And their answer is to shorten the lives. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm saying it right here. It's, it's not beyond the realm of possibility and the evidence is quite strong, you know? Absolutely. If you look at my um, loss of brain trust, mm -hmm. I have so many stories and I've got over 7,000 stories on there mm -hmm. and I've been doing them since January of 2017. Wow. Years. And if you look at those stories, what I've been doing the last few months over and over, I mean, so, um, you know, predominantly stories from Britain and Ireland, because it, I don't know if they don't have the funds that we do, or I, I'm not sure why it's happening, but 
they have, um, they're devastated. If you look at the stories, they're building autism schools, they're building special schools, they're adding um, special classrooms everywhere. And just as we extended the age of special ed now um, to 21, in Britain, they extended, they extended it to 25. So wow. you can be in high school till you're 25 in, in Britain. And because they don't have adult services. And they keep saying in these articles, this is unsustainable, unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that should be an alarm going off. And you don't see the government. No one's talking about why. And they're always talking about increases, increased cost, increased number of disabled children. And I, these stories, like I say, are endless. And they're, they're so endless. frightening yeah. to me to, to look at them. Yeah, you know, it, it. I'm just scrolling through uh, the website lossofbraintrust.com, you know, and it just goes on and on of all these articles shouting, "We need help! We need help! We need help for to care for these kids, to educate these kids," you know, everything. And there's nothing really here to say why is this happening? How do we stop this? The, the British government, the parliament just put like a $3 billion increase into special ed. And they're doing this because they have to. The county councils that are in charge of education in England can't pay for these kids. And mm. they're, they're basically telling the government, we, we can't educate them. So the federal government, the national government in England has, because um, England, Northern Ireland, and Scotland are separate education systems. So mm. the... They, um, they've got to step in. The national government has to step in or the schools will be broke. Yeah, they will be. Yeah, all of society. And, you know, where we, you know, there's just so much. It's not only, it's the individual lives, which, of course, have the highest priority. We want our children to have the best shot at health and happiness when they enter this world. But as a society, where are we going to find our soldiers? Where, you know, to protect our nation? Where are we going to find people to, you know, to have society function when you have such a high percentage that that cannot, that will never reach that. Um, I did find, I wanted to share with you. um, I found the insert at the FDA for the hepatitis B vaccine called Endurix. And this one in particular has 0.5 milligrams of aluminum, which is 500 micrograms massive amount of of aluminum and dr james Weiler. which vaccine was that this is called endurix hepatitis b um let's see when it was licensed let me get to the first page uh 1989 is when this one was licensed okay yeah um birth through 19 years of age a series of three that they give. So yeah. And um, Dr. James Lansweiler has done some excellent research and studies that are posted uh, that are published about um, aluminum and the amount of toxic levels of aluminum. And his studies have shown that, that children, babies and and young children are in a state of um, aluminum toxic overload for the first year or two of their life. 
And yeah, we, also, um, we always talk about removing mercury from vaccines. No one ever talks about what about the aluminum content, which is also yeah. a neurotoxin. Um, we don't talk about that yeah. at all. It was really interesting on the high wire the other day. Um, the big tree was interviewing. Um, I think it was Geert Vandebosch who was talking about it because he is a vaccine researcher and he said that behind the scenes, there was some talk years ago of trying to eliminate aluminum from vaccines, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. I'll have to go back and, and rewatch that segment. Dell was quite shocked, as was I, that they actually behind the scenes had been talking about it. So they know. They know it's harming kids, but you take it out, the shots don't work. Well, right. and by work, I mean they don't trigger an antibody response. And um, the, the big thing um, that, that I really see here, Anne, is that since the government more than 100 years ago took up vaccines as their favorite tool of choice to target communicable infection, um, there has been a systemic refusal to look at the big picture, to look at actual outcomes. Does the does disease avoidance, and I'm talking about childhood diseases from experiencing measles, mumps, rubella, whooping cough. Does avoidance of these diseases um, by the use of these um, vaccine products, is, is that leading to healthier children overall, to healthier outcomes? And they refuse to do the studies. They refuse to look at, to see if interfering with childhood, um, experiencing childhood of infections actually increases overall health along the lifespan of the individual, right? And anytime a, a vaccine product comes out, suddenly nobody's looking at treatment. So you have, for instance, um, like chickenpox. In the United States, chickenpox, the death due to chickenpox annually before the shot was 17 in the pediatric population. It was about 17 people a year in the pediatric population. Yeah, 17. Um, and so obviously, you know, to me, as somebody, you know, looks at it more with common sense, well, if getting chickenpox when you're six gives you very strong naturally acquired immunity that is boosted, you know, every so many years of life by re-exposure, and it helps you prevent from having shingles later on, then ideally what you need to do is figure out how to prevent those 17 people from dying. And then those people who, who didn't die from chickenpox, but who had severe complications, obviously we want treatments to help prevent severe disease. We look at COVID, it's the same thing. 99.9% .9 of individuals recover from COVID. Of course, we have this whole other side issue going on that, that it was made in a lab and it's got some health issues that we've never seen with the coronavirus before because it's man-made in a lab, but natural acquired immunity is better, stronger and treatments exist to help individuals not develop severe disease and not die from it. And there are treatment protocols to help with long COVID and that sort of thing. Go to flccc.net, brilliant doctors there. Um, 
I'm rambling on about this because it's it's so infuriating that they won't step back and look at the big picture. It's always they're measuring uptake of the product instead of outcome of the product usage, in, including injury from the product um, and and health. And of course, we have like the brilliant Dr. Paul Thomas, who is bravely um, standing up against the powers that be, who analyzed the data from his practice and showed that the children, the fewer shots you get in early childhood, the healthier the child is. But our federal government refuses to to do that. And they have been asked to do that. They were asked to do that by Bobby Kennedy and Del Bigtree in a famous meeting with the FDA years ago. And they said, no, we'll never do that study. No. Yeah. So science has evolved beyond the concept of tricking the immune system into not having a full immune reaction, right, to a virus. We've learned that, you know, you just can't fool Mother Nature in that way. There's got to be a better way, and there are better ways. But we're looking at an industry that aims for all 7 billion people on the planet to be a customer pre-cradle to grave. Oh, yeah. And all of the countries provide liability shields to these companies, as well as provide them with, with our taxpayer dollar research money, golden goose. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah, absolutely. So we've got maybe four more minutes and I've talked way too much. And so I want to hand things over to you. Tell, you know, what do you want viewers and listeners to know and where can they go to learn more? Well, I, I, I always tell parents, I mean, I keep a very low profile in my hometown because I don't want to be seen as, you know, kind of the, the crazy fanatic. But in my writing and the people I deal with when I'm at conferences and stuff, you know, inform yourself because you need to be able to defend your decisions. And if you are going to oppose vaccines, you need to have the facts. And to there's wonderful, wonderful books out there. I've written I've written articles that so many reviews of books by by top people on what um, vaccines, what you know, what, how vaccines injure kids, what we need to know. Uh, it's you. You just simply have to educate yourself. And there's so I'm there's endless um, sources now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so these articles that you've written are the um, most of them at Age of Autism. Oh, I'm on the wrong tab. Let me go to the right yeah. tab here. Home. If you go to Age of Autism, my name's on the, the right hand mm-hmm. sidebar and you hit that and it goes down. It goes um, through all of those. And if yeah. you scroll down, you see the scroll down, you see the schoolhouse. Those stories I put out about once a week, and that's a schoolhouse okay. that's dilapidated. Mm-hmm. My managing editor, Kim Rossi on Age of Autism, she found that picture, and so I said, that's that's it. And that's mm-hmm. also the picture on my website, Loss of Brain Trust, because it's it's what's happening in education. And just and if you look at the stories on this um, mm-hmm. that thing, at the, that site on what's happening in education, now imagine five years down the road, what society is going to be like when we're not only still talking about education collapsing under the weight of all the disabled students they have to provide for by law, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also you you're gonna have an adult population that we simply cannot afford. And and mm-hmm. I, if the best source on that are my stories um, with Toby Rogers, who's a political economist and mm-hmm. um, excellent, excellent. Um, he's not involved in the autism community personally. So he was just looking at what is this going to cost society? Basically, we're never going to be able to afford it. Governments are going to just practically go under. Trying trillions of dollars just for autism. What are you going to have for anything else? Exactly. So we need to stop the harm and we need to gather together to support each other, to love the individuals um, impacted, to support and respect them, of course, but also to prevent um, it happening more. So um, ageofautism.com, I encourage people to go there. If this is new to you, if through COVID you just sort of became aware that, hey, maybe the CDC and the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies have not been telling you the truth about vaccines, um, Age of Autism is a great place to go to start. Um, it's been around, well, since 2007 with great information. And it's a lot more than just autism that you know it's yeah that's kind of our base but there's a lot on just like the yeah. stuff we're talking about um the pharmaceutical yeah. power and control and yeah exactly well and dockle thank you so much for coming on an informed life radio it's been a pleasure meeting you thank you for your great work oh and thank you and i'm so glad your voice is out there ah uh, thank wonderful. you Yeah, so you've been listening to An Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and live on CHD-TV. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we've got Dr. Denise Sibley. Take care. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it healthcare voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website, InformedChoice.com. 
informchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informchoicewa.org today. We need a Hello and welcome back to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW out in the greater Puget Sound region and streaming live to CHD TV. I'm so glad you could be with me here today. Our first guest was wonderful, um, Ann Dockle, Age of Autism. Please go check out that, especially if you're if you're new to the idea that maybe there are environmental causes of autism. There are do begin to do that research so you can make um, some better informed decisions uh, going forward because we have got to stop this autism and neurological developmental epidemic that's happening today. My guest this hour is somebody that I'm very happy to now call friend. Her name is Dr. Denise Sibley. So we'll bring Dr. Sibley on. And um, hi, there she is. Hi. <laughs> Hello, hello. Good to see your beautiful face. And, you know, by way of introduction, I'm going to kind of embarrass you a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm going to share and read aloud. If you can see this here, where did it go? Something that the state of Tennessee did for you, especially Representative Lynn and Senator Nicely. This was a resolution to honor and commend Dr. Denise Sibley for her exemplary service to the state of Tennessee. Whereas this General Assembly takes great pride in recognizing those outstanding individuals who serve as advocates for the greater good, thereby contributing significantly to the well-being of their fellow citizens, and whereas one such person is Dr. Denise Sibley, who through her tireless advocacy on behalf of public health has distinguished herself as a community leader of whom we can all be proud. And whereas a concierge doctor with more than 25 years of experience as a physician, Dr. Sibley is a fellow of the American College of Physicians and has held board certification in internal medicine since 1989. And whereas Dr. Denise Sibley received a bachelor's of Science degree from College of William and Mary in 1986 and a Doctor of Medicine degree from University of Virginia School of Medicine in 86. She completed her internal medicine residency at the University of Virginia Hospital from 86 to 89. And whereas dedicated to serving the needs of her community, Dr. Sibley is a member of the Republican Executive Committee, as well as Tennessee Freedom Doctors, a local group of physicians and other healthcare professionals that comes together to share research and collaborate with the aim of preserving lives and defending medical freedom. And whereas a resident of Johnson City, Dr. Denise Sibley has freely, freely treated more than 4,000 patients with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin during the coronavirus pandemic. And whereas deeply devoted to her faith, Dr. Sibley is a member of the Bethlehem Lutheran Church. She has served in many capacities. Well, I'm going to change pages here. And where is Dr. Sibley is a fierce advocate for scientific based medical freedom and religious freedom. And her efforts were essential to the passage of SB 2188, which authorized over the counter availability of ivermectin 
in consultation with a pharmacist, because of her efforts, ivermectin will save lives in Tennessee. And whereas Dr. Denise Sibley is a public-spirited individual in the highest order who has done her utmost to serve the people of Tennessee during these unprecedented times, now, therefore, be it resolved by the House of Representatives of the 112th General Assembly of the state of Tennessee, the Senate concurring, that we honor and commend Dr. Denise Sibley for her exemplary service to the state of Tennessee as a tireless advocate on behalf of public health extending our deepest gratitude for her exceptional service and leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, and every bit of word of truth there. So um, I'll let viewers know that Dr. Sibley and I journeyed a few times, made the very long drive from, she's mm -hmm. about an hour longer than me from Johnson City. And then I'm in Rogersville all the way to the Capitol. Um, sometimes for not, because of whatever you were going to testify on, got pushed to the next day or the next week and back home we'd go. Um, but you came and you came prepared hours and hours of preparation in order to be able to accurately and eloquently speak to um, health committees about important legislation. And one of my, I wish I had grabbed the clip. Oh shoot, I'll have to do that next time. I'll never forget when one legislator started talking about a brand new study that was out. And you said, do you mean this one? And you gave the title and the publication date and you explained exactly why that study did not say what the legislator believed it said. Um, boom. <laughs> Boom, right out of the park. Um, so was that the first time you've ever been so active in the state legislature? Absolutely. Uh, Bernadette, thank you for having me. And you are a dear, dear friend. Um, I, I consider it an honor to be on your show. Um, yes, I had never been to the Capitol. And I must confess that I've been in Tennessee for 32 years. I really didn't even know how a law was made prior to this COVID era. So um, this whole COVID um, pandemic uh, opened my eyes to many things. And one was that I found myself uh, fighting for freedom, uh, for medical freedom, religious freedom, and doing things I had never thought I could do before and becoming a very discriminant um, reader of academic literature, which I'd never mm -hmm. done before either, uh, because we were forced to. Um, we could no longer uh, trust, uh, shall I say, the three-letter agencies to deliver us accurate information. And so, yes, hundreds, thousands of hours of study, self-study, mm -hmm. and finding out the real truth, drinking for it. And that was the first time I'd ever been to the Capitol uh, mm -hmm. to any to give any testimony to anything. I, I didn't even really know what the process was like when I showed up. Um, so I didn't even know the rules. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I quickly learned what the rules you were and when to speak and, you know, how to. Uh, but uh, yeah. it was an exhilarating, uh, very difficult, but very exhilarating experience to be involved in that process and to be able to help the Tennessee citizens. And that was my goal. Uh, of course, the ivermectin uh, bill and then subsequent law that was signed uh, into law by Governor Lee um, is just, you know, it's one of our babies. And certainly 
Um, you had a lot to do with it. And um, at, it, what I wanted was for citizens of Tennessee to have safe and effective access to ivermectin, which mm -hmm. is to truly human grade. Yeah. <laughs> human, human grade USP. That you means U.S. pharmaceutical grade. Yeah. Um, UPS standard. Um, and um, that's what I wanted. Instead of uh, folks going to the feed store or whatever to buy their ivermectin. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was my goal. And now, as of today, we have 16 pharmacies on board uh, through uh, collaborative pharmacy agreements. And there's another one down um, at, near Chattanooga that's apparently uh, it has a CPA maybe through somebody else. And it, that's called a collaborative pharmacy agreement. So um, I've taken responsibility for, for these pharmacies, these 16, and um, have wanted them to be fully informed of what they're doing and mm -hmm. what ivermectin is. And um, I've had, it's been an incredible um, response from the public. They mm -hmm. want this. They want and, this. Um, they want it. Uh, they heard about uh, the, uh, we, many of the pharmacies have gotten calls from other states and of course, we do not ship out of state. I do not have a, a license other than Tennessee. So if they present themselves uh, to Tennessee, uh, but we, uh, we're just overwhelmed with the need. And now that we're in yeah. the third Omicron surge, uh, which is very, very active right now, um, people do, uh, you know, it's very helpful to have that um, on to, board and to, yeah. for patients to get that. And they can, uh, first of all, I believe that the one down in Chattanooga that you are not the physician mm -hmm. that entered the agreement, they do ship out of state because some of my friends in Washington state purchased through that one. So okay. um, I'm keeping, um, a, trying to keep a, a list as I hear of pharmacies coming on board at healthyimmunitynow.org and go to the ivermectin tab and there you'll find the list. And I put the one at the top of the list that I knew would ship out of state because I'm getting emails all the time saying, hey, I'm sure. in this state can I buy? Um, but otherwise, the the other ones you do physically have to be here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it makes it so that people can go stock up now. So right. when they get sick, and they get the diagnosis, they can start immediately. Um, right. And they, there is no delay, because early treatment saves lives. That's what Absolutely. everything has shown. And you got to meet and you know, I was sort of a facilitator, none of this would have we wouldn't have gotten any ground without the experts, which is you and Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Ryan mm -hmm. Cole, Dr. Robert Malone, Richard Urso and right. um, Littell, Don those Little. Were <laughs> um, and then of course we had, we had other, and forgive me, I don't remember the names of other doctors and nurses right here from Tennessee mm -hmm. came and supported also. So it was, it was quite the group effort to educate, but you know, I found that a lot of the legislators were already very supportive. They had read the literature themselves. They were following certain doctors and they themselves had taken ivermectin yes. mm -hmm. and were able to at home doctor themselves through um, their experience. So um, correct. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but we got her done and it was, it's pretty cool. And, and it is important to go ahead and get your stash, what I call your stash, because on the weekends, most of these pharmacies are not open. So, um, you know, before September of 2021, we actually could get ivermectin at many of the chain pharmacies. Mm -hmm. But after a certain letter went out from the AMA and the American Pharmaceutical Association, um, mm -hmm. that chilled 
at all of the chain pharmacies. And so there really are very few options on the weekend. So do if you get sick on the weekend, it, it's really tough. Um, I've had people travel four, five hours to get ivermectin. Uh, there is one pharmacy that's available on Saturdays and Sundays. But, you know, if you want to travel that far or have okay. your family, but do get your stash because we're going to need it. COVID's not going away. Um, and it's going to become, uh, it is already in its endemic phase. That means it's going to be here yeah. um, to stay with various uh, you know, permutations of variants or whatever they want to call them. Um, it's not behaving like influenza because it's not just confined to a single season. Um, but here it yeah. is and be prepared. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lab created, a, a lab manipulated virus. And they did an excellent job of making these things it be very effective. And I've been watching Dr. Paul Merrick on intermittent um, fasting that mm -hmm. he's really into as well as Dr. Henry Ely. And it really seems, it doesn't seem as if the, this the spike protein was created in such a way that it tries to shut down your ability to get rid of it, you know, and it's, yeah. So people are going to need um, access to good medications. And I'm always trying to encourage people right now while the sun's shining and you're exactly. feeling good to whether you, yeah. you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you know, I made that yes. point during my testimony. It's for everyone. It's for and everyone. actually right now, especially for the vaccinated. Yeah. You're um, more susceptible, negative mm -hmm. efficacy after uh, mm -hmm. a certain time. And it, it appears to be doing the imprinting. So, you know, what I'd like to do before we get too much further, I'm going to kind of combine two things that I was telling um, viewers that we were doing today. One is talking to you. And the other one I want to share with you. Let me go ahead and do this here. There was, um, ba, 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 ba. you need to do this one. There we go. Um, can you see that there? So let me see how big it is. I think that's good enough. Um, in Washington state, now this is kind of unusual to Washington state. I don't know other states who do this, but at the state level, the Department of Health has a vaccine advisory committee and they meet quarterly to discuss um, the vaccine program and new vaccines and shipments and purchases and the whole thing. It, it, it's like attending sort of a marketing sales um, inventory meeting of a pharmaceutical company. Um, and this, and I'm showing this in particular with you, Dr. Sibley, I think this is a good matchup because this is systemically part, a major part of what we're up against. I'm less, I'm less angry at Pfizer, Moderna, and those, because we've learned over the years with their criminal history, find, we know that they're criminals. I, we know they're not going to be honest players, but our own taxpayer funded public health system should. They should be standing between us and pharma and we should trust them. They should not be marketing agencies or entities. So um, I wanted to go through a few things that was in the meeting yesterday that they had. And the first thing I want to play for you to show you what's kind of going on and how systemically this just keeps happening. This is them beginning to talk about monkeypox. Talk a little bit. <laughs> monkeypox vaccination um, and start there and 
how and Mary Wynn and Kathy Bay from the department could help as well. So the federal government is working to make additional monkeypox vaccination, um, to stand up additional and expanded monkeypox vaccination, especially um, for moving right now, for, there's been, um, you know, initially some vaccination available for people who were maybe exposed to occupational exposure, or we knew they were a direct contact, but really trying to continue to broaden that to other people who may um, be in settings where we know or communities where we know there's been some disease transmission happening. Um, so we're moving in an expanded direction. There's not um, full vaccination or enough vaccine to um, support broad movement yet, but that's, that's coming. So we're in kind of the first phase of increased vaccination. And right now in our state, we just have 398 courses. So that's enough to give um, 398 people, two doses. I'm going to pause for just a minute here. And so what you are seeing in the state of Washington is very likely happening behind closed doors in every state. The fact that they are talking about what's coming is a full rollout of the monkeypox mm -hmm. vaccine, at least for target populations. Really? <laughs> It's it's yeah. absurd. And and the shot was given FDA license in 2019. 19, correct. Tested humans, um, except for they did these um, antibody studies. Antibody so, studies, mm -hmm. right? Just to see if it was um if it triggered as many antibodies as the smallpox vaccine. And you know, it's it's appalling that, first of all, that it was licensed. And, and I encourage individuals to go to CHD TV and look at mm -hmm. the Good Morning CHD um, page, show page, because yesterday, Dr. Merrill Nass did a brilliant coverage mm -hmm. of monkeypox vaccine. The government asked for it to be licensed, and they wouldn't expose who in particular in the government was asking for it to be licensed in 2019 for no reason, you know. Anyway, watch that and you're going to get the kind of the full scope. But I'll, I'll keep going and show you. They just take whatever comes down the pipeline at them and with no question. A vaccine. Um, I think right now, Tao, we probably have around 25 cases in the state, um, but I have not looked at the numbers today or yesterday. Uh, 20 um, was the last number that okay. I saw. Thank you. Um, um, the majority of those are in majority, or all of them are majority in King County, I believe. Yeah, all but all but uh, two or three. Okay. Thank you. And so, um, so we're working most of that vaccine. Obviously, we're working with King County um, on distribution and getting it out. Um, CDC is working on purchasing an um, FDA um, clearance of more additional doses of this vaccine. And, and the good news is this is the Gyanos vaccine that um, in 2019 got licensure for to be used for monkeypox vaccination. So we already have um, an FDA approved vaccine for monkeypox, but we actually have two. This vaccine um, is the one that um, is the preferred to use less potential side effects um, and um, um, lots of other potential benefits of using the Gyanos vaccine. So, so how could they possibly know that at this stage? It's barely. They don't. <laughs> they don't. They what don't. is she and, saying? You know, the the whole monkeypox is just 
such a scam. I mean, 98% of the individuals, let's, let's get real. You know, it's like COVID. We didn't risk stratify anyone. We said that kids are just as susceptible to dying as grandma at 99. That was not true. Um, in this monkey pox, 98% of the individuals affected are homosexuals, and that's where that should be targeted. So let's, let's give the group that needs to be targeted. And I mean, it, 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 let's talk about them instead of saying everyone is equally at risk. Uh, this is the first time and what I understand from Dr. Merle Nass is that, um, you know, this is human to human contact. Usually uh, before any monkeypox cases were animal to human. Um, and this, no one has, has, has died uh, from monkeypox. Uh, the, this new vaccine has a, a significant risk of myocarditis, the same kind of issues we're dealing with with COVID, maybe on a bigger scale. And certainly the smallpox, I think it was one in a hundred. Yeah. So we're talking about a significant vaccine that yeah. we know no, nothing about. And right. you're talking about, you know, possibly mass vaccination. Um, when and, the risk, you haven't risk stratified anyone. So no. this makes no, well, let me just say, yeah. uh, there's no longer any real medical science. There's just political science. Yeah, definitely just political science. <laughs> it's, it, it's very, Let's just alarming. call it what it is. And no, again, because they've got this shot all lined up. They had it set up in 2019, which is very fishy. But let, no talk about, and, first of all. Of actually, you know, my my uh, staff and I, uh, we, there was a monkeypox uh, episode last summer. So it was mentioned by uh, Tedros at WHO. Mm -hmm. And then again in early, I think it was in February, it was mentioned mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So we kind of had our little antennas up shall i say that because they give you hints at what's coming uh, as yeah well they don't as, want to say marburg yeah um, <laughs> so it doesn't so it seems real so, you know they give you little hints and then then voila voila yeah. you have your vaccination ready right but no talk of first of all you know what to do to avoid it and maybe right. you know who's most susceptible maybe you need some right. vitamin a d zinc the same it's a virus right so any any you know you just need there no alternatives it's just suddenly this and, population and stay away group. from anyone that looks like they have a big rash on their body. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Um, CDC is working oh, on yeah, getting more vaccine into the state. We expect by hopefully the end of the month, we'll see what maybe our second kind of phase of vaccine allocations to the state. And then potentially into the fall, CDC is working on um, even additional um, amounts of vaccine. Right now, this vaccine is being um, kind of treated as um, going through um, the federal national strategic stockpile. So it's kind of happening outside like vaccine ordering and procurement kind of outside of our normal process for COVID vaccine or other childhood vaccines. CDC is working into more normal processes. So maybe in the future, we would be ordering vaccine or providers would in some of their normal ways they may request vaccine from the state. But right now, any um, providers in the community, local health departments are working them very closely around um, as cases are identified.
Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pause that. I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead. They just go on for a while and mm -hmm. and pretty much say that eventually you'll be able to just order it as a routine shot, you know, and and they want to do the same thing for the COVID shot. They just want to, in fact, I think that's one of the things that I get to later is they want to normalize ordering. They just want it to be just like anything else you order. Um, there was a place at 28.50 here I wanted to play for you right here. Um, the EUA for Novavax for COVID-19 vaccine uh, just yesterday. So I just put a link to the FDA news release. Um, ACIP uh, is planning to meet next week on July 19th. Their current isn't, there currently isn't an agenda. We anticipate that they may be um, talking to or speaking to Novavax um, and, you know, perhaps making a recommendation and reviewing the results. Um, but we're, we're waiting to see the agenda to see what might be included. Um, what we know is that it's a two-dose series for people over 18, um, recommended three weeks, two doses recommended three weeks apart um, with a 90% efficacy rate. Um, in terms of packaging, it's um, 10 dose vials, 10 vials per carton, so 100 dose minimum ordering, um, similar to um, the other vaccines. So similar to what we we just heard where they just throw out that monkeypox vaccine, no questions asked, the same with Novavax. Novavax was, had really struggled to get emergency use authorization mm -hmm. because they're having manufacturing problems, right? Correct. Um, and then I have in my notes here, first of all, 90%, that's relative risk. Right. You know, relative. if you go- Not if, absolute. Not absolute. If you go- uh, dive down in there and you see, and they only looked at cases of COVID up to six days post the second dose. So when do you turn into negative efficacy like all the other shots? Um, the, it's well, gonna have the same problem of antibody dependent enhancement, enhancement because it's a spike protein that we're seeing with, yeah. these shots, with immune imprinting, right? And, and I think, you know, in the medical community, people, had some hope for Novavax, I'll say a year ago, mm -hmm. because it was more of a protein derived, uh, more um, not not a traditional vaccine. But anyway, as as mm -hmm. we've learned more, it still has the bioweapon spike protein in it. And it seems to be very sticky as yes. far as not letting loose of cell membranes. So yeah. there is no benefit to Novavax and it's not any it's not a step up. Um, yeah, it, as far it, as I know, this is the first vaccine this company has ever produced, and, and it, um, there's it uses no. novel adjuvant matrix M, uh, right? Yeah, right. novel adjuvant and that's highly yeah. inflammatory with signals of autoimmune reactions, autoimmune yeah. disorders, it's and not not and to, <laughs> and to top it off, it says this is this is in the FDA's own acceptance letter here the information. Um, the clinical trial was conducted prior to the emergence of Delta and Omicron variants. So this was done on the Alpha variant. It's a legacy, you know, obsolete variants. Obsolete. And when you, when I watched some of the FDA meetings prior to them giving it EUA, it was, it, if it wasn't tragic, it would have been funny to hear them say, well, you know, gosh, um, it doesn't look very good, basically, but it's no worse than the two we already gave EUA to. So it would only be fair to give them an EUA too. So instead of pulling the bad products, they're going to add another one because it's equally as bad. So they want to be a fair player. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it's their agenda. So what do you expect? I mean, it's their agenda. Right. 
Yeah, just I'm not infuriating. Yeah. Um, I wanted to then also show you, let's see, oh, they talked about vaccine hesitancy and lowering barriers and like, gee, why are people hesitant? It's because they're doing their medical due diligence and they're paying attention. Um, okay, this, this is really important. Um, 37, let's go to this stage here. Sorry for the little delay. 3740. There we go. So one thing that I um so first of all, the, the woman speaking now is a naturopath. She is the most pro-vaccine person I think I've ever met. She once said at a vaccine advisory committee meeting that she just wished that the state would mandate every single vaccine to make her job easier and take, you know, she doesn't want any exemptions. She just wants people to come in and roll up their sleeves or bend over and, and get it. Um, and she is supposedly a naturopath. I don't understand it. So now they're, they're talking about, she's, she's trying to find ways to language to encourage parents who are hesitant to give this to their babies. And this is what she's talking about. There's, there's quite a bit of research to support this idea is that um, when people are hesitant, it's helpful for them to know how many people have gotten vaccinated. So if they say like, oh, this vaccine is brand new, I don't want to vaccinate my baby because it's so new to say, well, you know, X million num number of babies have been vaccinated successfully and have done really well. Um, that putting that data out as it's coming might be helpful to say, oh, it's 5 million babies, 10 million babies have been vaccinated. So parents can feel that sense of security of these millions and millions of children. So they, they do this a lot. I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing now. Mm -hmm. They do this a lot at these meetings, um, which I feel like really interferes with a whole doctor-patient relationship. Every state department of health pushed by the CDC um, encourages states to put out information about how to basically coerce parents to accept the vaccine. Well, this whole environment, this immersion that the vaccine is always the right choice. And if you're not making that choice, then you need to be talked to, you need to be encouraged. And I don't understand, Dr. Sibley, I don't understand the mentality of a medical professional thinking that a shot is safe that has no long-term safety data. How can you justify telling a parent of a six-month-old, a one-year-old, oh, it's safe and effective, and millions and millions of other babies have gotten it. So what? Go look at VAERS. Go look at, yeah, I mean, let's go look at most recent numbers in VAERS, and right. let's, let's see, you know, how safe this is. Um, is it safe? And how many have reported? And we know that this is under reporting. As of today, we've got 54,692 people reporting that they have been permanently disabled following the shots. 54,000. And we have three, three deaths in the six month to five year old range already. And it's only been out a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and we have um, 55 deaths in the 17 year old and under. So is that not enough deaths? And um, yeah. is, is that a not, not enough? Um, we have, you know, 30,000 deaths. I mean, those are some of them are uh, 
foreign data, whatever that means, almost 30,000 deaths total. Mm -hmm. When is enough deaths? What is enough? Um, the, the, when, when do we say mm -hmm. that this is enough killing? Um, I, right. I, I think one baby death is what, you know, one baby dying of uh, the Peloton um, treadmill. Mm -hmm. Okay, the Peloton treadmill. One child died. And what did they do? Yeah, they pulled oh, it from the market. Immediately, they removed it. Immediately, one, one, right. one child. Right. One child right. died from the Peloton. What they like to claim <laughs> is that they, they, they try to claim and they cannot do it because the data is not there, that the benefits outweigh the risks. Oh, but no. But actually, they, you know, yeah. Steve Kirsch just and, and I'll have to give him the uh, the credit, but he just looked at he just released some UK data because yes. our government does not release any data. So we have to look elsewhere. Yeah. And through May, the May 20, 2022 data, um, the UK government has a problem. Yeah. Either they're producing garbage data and using that garbage data as a base for public policy. Uh, and it's a huge embarrassment. Or in the 10 to 14 year old age group, a triply vaxxed child is 40 times more likely to die than an unvaccinated child. Say now that again, repeat those numbers data. again. Pardon me? Say those numbers again. A triply vaxxed child, so that child has received three of the COVID vaccines, now has a 45 times more likely to die risk than unvaccinated child. That's all cause mortality, okay? All cause mm -hmm. mortality. And for the double vaccinated, it's twice that. So um, either the vaccine is the biggest killer of children right now in the UK, or uh, and it's the biggest uh, killer of uh, that's been deployed by the government, or either they're garbage, this is garbage data. So which is it? Um, but this yeah. time and time, I mean, you can look at other countries that actually give you data. Our, our country does not release data. Um, but wow. it, many children have to die if you supposedly are going to save one child. And, you know, at most, um, the statistics show that you have more of a chance of dying in an automobile accident going mm -hmm. to school or going anywhere than of dying of COVID as a child and or getting yeah. struck by lightning actually. Right. It's more than getting struck by lightning. So um and treatments know, exist even for the babies. Treatments exist. Not we wouldn't give them remdesivir, although you can give a seven pound infant remdesivir for mild COVID. But we, we would not that. No. <laughs> but um children do fine. Children do fine. Um children do fine. Uh, as far as, you know, what's been recorded, there was one death from COVID in a completely normal child who had no other, no other medical problems. Yeah. And, you know, and yes, children have leukemia. Yes. Children have birth defects. Yes. There are many sick children and yes, some did die a small, mm -hmm. small, small percent, uh, very small percent. Um, but they did very well. That's why the risk stratification was so important. Yeah, you you treat the riskiest people. The average age of death from COVID is actually longer than our life expectancy in the United States. So, uh, I mean, it, it makes no sense. But of course, it's not supposed to. It's 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 a agenda, and yeah. um, the vaccine should be halted. Yes, across all age groups, yeah. and that's what the World Council of Health, uh, which I support, 
has come out and stated that, um, led by Robert Malone and some of our colleagues. But um, the, the the vaccine data is is just abysmal. It, it is sad. abysmal. And where is the common sense? And there, I forgot there was there was one more major part of the Washington State Vaccine Department of Health Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting. And it's important because if it's happening in this meeting in Washington State, it's happening behind closed doors in all states. And this is a huge push for the HPV vaccine. Um, let's see, where did I go? I lost the link now to, there we go. Because um, all vaccinations are, are hesitating right now. There's right. been uh, just a, a, a mass um, stunting of all vaccinations, adult as, and children. And, as people um, begin to do their research, yeah. Yes, as we see, wow, this is what they did with COVID. I wonder what else has happened. And, yeah. you know, that's the dive I took. I mm -hmm. personally, as a, a busy physician, you trust the CDC. You don't really do the research um, on the vaccines you give and the vaccines you take. I mean, you don't do the 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 basic research, you trust them and what they said, okay, this is efficacious and safe. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you actually look at the data yourself, and it takes a lot of time, it's appalling. It is, it is quite appalling. And it's not just that you trusted the CDC and the FDA. It's that your entire education Yes. told you vaccines are safe, effective, and necessary. And anybody who says otherwise is a whack job. So, right. you know, that permeates society. That is so much stronger. It even overwhelmed your even desire to go look. Now, let me just play a little bit about this, and I'll American tell you Cancer where society, we're headed. Um, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Washington CHIP, Child Health Improvement Partnership, uh, to coach clinics to improve vaccination rates. And she also serves on the National HPV Vaccination Roundtable's Best Practices Task Group. And so I will now turn things over to you, Dr. Zorn. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you, Dr. Cronget. I really appreciate the kind introduction. And I'm really excited to be talking with you today about why starting HPV vaccine at age nine is such an important and simple strategy to boost our immunization rates and to prevent cancer for our children. So I, you know, we're in the interest of time, I'm going to stop there. But that Washington State meeting is on CHDTV under events. You will see it there, the Washington State Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting um, that aired yesterday. It's at chd.tv under their events. Um, so they're pushing. And, and at one point, I have a quote here. Where was it? Where he said they're going to do a very aggressive push to vaccinate all nine-year-olds with Gardasil. Huge campaign coming. Um, <laughs> look out. And, you know, cervical cancer generally about the age of 50 is when the diagnosis generally begins. And these first shots were given out in 2006. So it, we would have to wait until 2056 to begin to see if cervical cancer rates actually work. So they're using markers of like uh, genital warts and different surrogate markers to try to say that they are preventing cancer. And, um, you know, and, and because Merck 
pulled such shenanigans at their clinical trials. There are actually now, I think there's more than 30 lawsuits outside of vaccine court based on fraud because Merck knew that it caused all these injuries and did not fully inform the public. So it has escaped the vaccine injury court system because of fraud, because that court system doesn't cover fraud. Um, And what's really appalling, um, and then I want to go on to another really important topic, um, is that there was this study done that was funded by the Gates Foundation that said that just one Gardasil shot was plenty protective. You only need one. But what's interesting is it's only being pushed, this concept of one and done shot, in third world countries where uptake has been very low. It's as if, well, we couldn't get them to do the whole series. So let's just tell them all you need is one. Maybe we can have the sales of one everywhere. But here in the U.S. and at the Washington State meeting, they were still saying two up to a certain age. And if you're older than that, three. So they're still raking in the big bucks with two or three shots here in the U.S. It's it's just appalling. So um, thank you for, you know, yes, ra- and, racing you through. Know, I, I, Bill Gates has a, a an MD degree. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, but yes, I think they were kicked out. I think he was kicked out of India over the HPV vaccine, if I'm not sure. Right. Um, but right. yeah, um, the HPV vaccine, there are so many uh, different um, variants of, of the HPV virus um, mm-hmm. that produce that, that are that are out there in the public. If you vaccinate for one set, then you're just going to select for the other ones that are out there. Yes. It, it really is. It's a it, it's caused more harm, and there has not been any right. change in cervical cancer. No, and even before they launched the product in, in the early two thousands, all of the data showed, all the experts, all the studies showed that um, lifestyle factors are what you know, most like ninety nine percent of all. Um, HPV, I'm not quite sure the number somewhere around there, you completely clear on your own and develop some good, strong immunity. For the rest, lifestyle factors make a determination of whether you clear the virus and go on to maybe pre-cancer or cancer. That's smoking, hormonal like birth control pills can um, lead you there. Um, And there are other environmental factors completely within your control Um, as well as just abstinence or just sticking with one partner that you know is not infected, right? Or there's, you know, the, the really, the medical is just get a pap smear, get a pap smear, get a pap smear and you'll detect early changes. If you have changes that are precancerous there, it's very slow process. Mm-hmm. You detect the process, you do something about it. Voila, it's gone. It's I gone. Mean, it's, it's one of the easiest to treat. Just get a pap smear. Just get a pap smear, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, that's really all you have to do. Right. Agreed. Fun. Agreed. Um, so I'm going to rush you on to the, the last and final topic, which is so important. One of the bills we had in, in Tennessee this year that didn't gain traction that I hope we can bring back is something we were calling Let Doctors Be Doctors. Um, and some of the, um, Dr. Paul Merrick and two other doctors are suing the FDA actually based on the, based on ivermectin, but the concept of let doctors be doctors and make the decision about ivermectin. Um, there's a witch hunt right now going Mm -hmm. on for doctors who are standing up and speaking against 
whatever FDA, CDC, and the powers that be are saying, having to do with masking, with the shots, and with COVID treatment. Um, the bulk of it right now is coming from the ABIM, the American Board of Internal Medicine. And you have a lifetime certification with them right now, but they still sent you a nasty gram, right? Mm -hmm. They did. <laughs> Along um, I guess you're in good company because some of my favorite, most beloved, respected people um, also got those nasty grams. Um, and the AAP, the Association of American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, is suing yes. ABIM. Yes. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah. So, you know, what we've experienced is a loss of medical freedom and uh, the loss of the patient doctor relationship. Um, and my myself, um, I, I'm just a, a small town physician, not academic, um, but I got a lot of exposure when I was in the in the state house. And after that, I received along with Dr. Peter McCullough, Pierre uh, Corey, and many others, um, received a letter dated the same day that um, accused us of false information and threatened us with sanction of our board certification. And board certification is something you earn and you pay the fees, which are significant, and you earn it after you have gone through an internal medicine residency. And that way you can say you're board certified in internal medicine. Everyone comes out with their MD degree from medical school, but then you go on and subspecialize. And to say that I'm an internal medicine board certified physician I took the exam. I studied a lot. I paid the fee and went to different state to take it. And um, I, at that time, it was a lifetime certification. And I've been in good standing with them since 1989. And because I do not agree with their consensus, is what they mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. that I now face a potential sanction of my board certification. And that could be that they could take my board certification and they also intimated um, licensure threats. Now, in the state of Tennessee, I'm not sure about that, but that's what they intimated. Um, and so, yes, they could. So, so if they indeed sanction us, um, right now we had to submit our uh, response, which was mine was 11 pages and um, took quite a bit of work uh, to respond. And I did. And they never bothered to tell me whether they received it, but. I did find out from their legal department that they did receive it. Um, and uh, we await what they're going to do. They're going to meet and decide our fate. And what this does is it uh, it's a cookie cutter approach. Either you say what we say or you can't uh, say you're an internal medicine doctor. I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. We always, an individual patient has a unique situation and when presented with that unique disease or that, especially in this setting of a novel, potentially life-threatening disease, I can use all, all sources of data on my own mm -hmm. to have an opinion, to come up with a course of treatment. We've done this forever. And using off-label drugs is common. Over 20% of the drugs we use are off-label. So using hydroxychloroquine, yeah. which we used in 2003 for SARS-1. Yes. So there was data published. Um, mm -hmm. There, there's data. We can use we can use data as well 
we don't have to look to you know the god of data out of the abim to say what we can do i've never asked them how to treat cholesterol or hypertension or stroke or a migraine there everybody has a migraine uh, cocktail protocol they've never <laughs> sanctioned me for that um, mm-hmm. but suddenly uh, if i say anything other than what they say then I am I am potentially sanctioned. And this gets right between the doctor and the patient that I no longer can can uniquely treat the person in front of me who presents with what I can. I mean, they taught yeah. us how to practice medicine and how to uh, look at data. And yeah. I've become actually much more discriminating than I was. And yeah. I can assess what what's going on and I can I can form a plan of treatment for the patient, especially with the medicines that are older than me. One of them's older than me. Yeah. Uh, 62. And the other is 30 some years old, you know, 1987. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking brand new drugs. They're FDA approved. Yeah. They have and excellent safety profiles. It, yes. Excellent. And yeah. so, so just for, just for uh, a comparison, um, a, a medicine called gabapentin, is a more dangerous drug than any of the drugs we used in, in COVID. Mm-hmm. It's the seventh, seventh most prescribed drug in 2019. And it's been prescribed off-label for about 95% of the prescriptions written. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's, it's actually a, a pretty serious medicine because almost 10% of overdoses of medicines have a gabapentin uh, occur with them. Um, So no board has come after any doctor that I'm aware of for prescribing gabapentin. Um, And well, we know it's political. Yeah. We know it's politically driven. It has to Pfizer has paid nine, $945 million in fines, civil and criminal fines for that medicine. But, but they don't come after you for that. But if no. I use uh, a medicine to try to treat someone that I think might die and I treat them for free, mm-hmm. uh, somehow that's that's being a bad doctor. Right. And um, it, well, it's, we, it really yeah. is. It's 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 against medical freedom, as you know. Yes, and we know it's it's absolutely being driven by the corporate capture of our three-letter mm-hmm. agencies because they could not give emergency use author- authorization to any of the injections or any of the drugs to treat if they acknowledge that HCQ, hydroxychloroquine, and ivermectin, and vitamin C, D, zinc, um, oxidative therapies, all these things actually worked. They could not do it. And so, and and that's one of the statements that they had in my letter that, that they said, I said was false. Yeah. Well, (laughs) the FDA is now being sued over that. And yeah, it's, and, and Mm -hmm. the people, luckily people are smarter than that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're figuring it out and, you know, it's, to me, it's just so absurd. So there, you, as it, to me, it seems so irresponsible as a doctor to use these coercion, um, hesitancy language um, scripts, basically, to, to get your patient to accept an emergency use authorized product, like a Pfizer mm-hmm. shot, 
that comes with no liability, has no long-term safety data, where the phase three trial studies have just been obliterated because they got rid of the control group, um, and for which there is such potential for injury, there's actually an adverse event reporting system. Now, ivermectin has been around for human use since, what, 1978? Is that the year, if I'm remembering? Or 1987? 1987 is when, yeah. Uh, 1987. So, mm -hmm. Since 1987, there is no ivermectin adverse event reporting system, right? Because... Correct. You know, it would be absurd. I mean, there would be nothing to report. It, you know, it, won it would Nobel be very minor. It won a Nobel, it won a Nobel Prize. Prize. Yeah, for being exactly. safe. It's so safe. And we've got the mechanisms of action of how they bind with a spike protein. It binds with your cell receptors where the spike would have wanted to bind. It's anti-inflammatory. I mean, and actually, and Dr. Merrick was talking about today, one of the mechanisms I didn't know, it actually helps your body go into autophagy, just like intermittent mm -hmm. fasting. So it actually helps you clear the virus. So with all this overwhelming data, for you and all these brilliant doctors to be in trouble for, for prescribing that over these emergency use products that are so dangerous that it has to have an adverse event reporting system, Please. Okay. So we got 30 seconds. Dr. Denise Sibley, I adore you. Thank you for all you have done. <laughs> um, you don't have a website, really. You've got one, but there's not much information on there, it. There's not much there because that's what they used against me, actually. My my DeniseSibleyMD.com is actually the only place, since I don't have social media, that they went and actually, so they, they paid uh, for people to go through and take statements off of my website. And mm -hmm. they did that with uh, Peter McCullough and Pierre Corey too. And all that, yeah. Um, but yes, so, I, you know, I, I didn't ask to be a COVID doctor, but God called me to. And it's been the most exciting, the most significantly busy time of my life. Yeah. Um, but well, it's the music's playing and yeah, it's been rewarding. God called you. Thank you for answering. Um, you've been listening to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW, and CHD.TV. We will be back next week. Take care. Thank you. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today.
Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.